Good evening. Good to see you all here. Thanks for being part of Cato University. Um, probably our last Cato University on the East Coast for a while. We're going back to beautiful Rancho uh, Bernardo in California, I think, next year. So I'm glad for those of you uh, here in the eastern part of the country to have a chance uh, to enjoy this. Um, it's a special honor for me to be able to introduce Rand Paul because many years ago I was a Kentuckian and I still have family there. In fact, my niece had a baby there today in Henderson, Kentucky. So one more, one more Rand Paul voter in 18 years. I must say though, I published some evidence recently on the Cato blog that my native state of Kentucky is the country's least libertarian state. So during his campaign, whenever Rand Paul said something that might make libertarians wince, I would say, look, he's doing the best he can in the country's least libertarian state. In any case, he wasn't scared off by Kentucky's populism or by the Republican establishment. He took on Mitch McConnell's hand-picked candidate in the Republican primary, and in the end, after they had stumped up and down the state of Kentucky, they ended up calling it a landslide. <laughs> he then went on to run against the incumbent Attorney General of Kentucky. I saw them debate once at the Fancy Farm Picnic, which may sound a little odd if you're from, not from Kentucky. If you're a Kentuckian, that's where all the candidates go. It happens actually to be a church picnic, and there had been a little flap the year before because uh, Jack Conway, the Attorney General, had said something that was considered a little unchurchy. I don't remember exactly what it was. Something like, I'm a tough son of a bitch. Um, so when Rand got up to um, participate along with Jack Conway in the Senate uh, uh, showdown at Fancy Farm Picnic, he said, you know that Jack got in a little trouble for what he said here at this church picnic last year kind of reminds me of the uh, seven words you can't say on television. So we know one word that Jack Conway won't say this year, and we also know six other words he won't say this year. Barack Obama, Harry Reid, and Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> a, couple <of> weeks, <laughs> a couple of weeks after my experience at the Fancy Farm Picnic, I went on the McLaughlin Group. They put, you know, oddball, uh, uh, guests on there in August when all the important people leave Washington. And at the end, they ask you for a prediction. I said, my prediction, in Kentucky, the Democrats are calling Rand Paul an extremist. Rand Paul is responding by calling his opponent a Democrat. In the end, the voters will vote against the Democrat. And indeed, they did. Ron Paul is one of the fathers of the Tea Party which sort of makes Rand Paul a son of the Tea Party. And that's why his first book was The Tea Party Goes to Washington. Since getting to the Senate and publishing that book, he has lived up to everything his supporters hoped. He's introduced a bill to actually balance the federal budget. He's spoken out for a constitutional foreign policy. He's demanded actual debate on the Patriot Act. He managed to kill a particularly bad piece of the indefinite deten detainment legislation just by demanding that the Senate vote on it. He's fought government bullies from the EPA to the TSA, 
and he stood like Jimmy Stewart at a desk in the Senate for 13 straight hours to force the nation's attention. He stood there to force the Senate's and the nation's attention on the issue of unmanned drone strikes. And he did, by the time the 13 hours was over, force the Obama administration a little bit. They promised not to drone anyone at a sidewalk cafe in Kentucky. Uh, that's a start. And more than that, as he likes to quote the English martyr Hugh Latimer, he lit a candle for freedom that has yet to be put out. And now I may even have to revise my view of Kentucky politics because last fall, Rand Paul endorsed a candidate in a congressional primary, a candidate who was running against a candidate who had all the other big endorsements and who went around saying, we don't need any more socialist, communists or libertarians in the Republican party. And Thomas Massey won that primary and went on to join Rand Paul in the Senate as a House member from Kentucky. So please join me in welcoming to the Cato University podium, the junior senator from the Commonwealth of Kentucky, the first but not the only member of the Liberty Movement representing Kentucky in Congress, and the first senator from the Tea Party, Rand Paul. Thank you. Now, David neglected to mention one thing about Fancy Farm. It's not fancy, and it's not a farm. <laughs> but it's the hardest political speech you'll ever give. There's probably 5,000 people there. They're all yelling and screaming. The only thing they prevent is they won't let you throw things at the, speecher, at the speeches. But it's, it is the most raucous crowd. It's part of the game. People dress up, both sides yell and scream as you can scream the loudest. And uh, the media loves it because it's sort of a, you know, a circus kind of show. But uh, the politicians who have to stand up there and take the abuse don't necessarily like it. Um, everybody's got a comfortable seat. And I can go on for a while. So, um, this morning, I get, I get up this morning, I can't find my cell phone anywhere, so I asked Harry Reid if I could borrow his. And do you think the NSA is going to be surprised to see Harry Reid at the Cato Institute? <laughs> the president was at a um, junior high the other day, and he said, you know, he's always promising something. He said, I promise you free high-speed internet. And so one of the, it was sort of an awkward moment. One of the kids raised his hand and says, why, so you can read our email faster? <laughs> I have to admit, none of those jokes are really mine. Actually, the cell phone one was mine. The other ones I steal from Jimmy Kimmel or Jimmy Fallon. I, I give my kids $10 for good jokes. <laughs> so uh, my one son the other day sent me a YouTube, and I think kids only get all, they don't watch Fox News, CNN, they watch YouTube. And so he sent me a YouTube of Jimmy Kimmel on the street, and he, Jimmy Kimmel's saying, so the first person that comes up, well, ma'am, uh, you know the president has pardoned the sequester and sent it to Portugal. And the woman's like, well, you know, he's such a good man. And, and he wouldn't send it to Portugal if they didn't deserve it. And so he, he went through a few people and they all said the same thing, had no clue what a sequester was. So then he came up to this one woman and he said, well, let's make this a man because I don't want to make this all about women. Let's say he came up to this man and he, he said, well, you've, you've heard 
North Korea is rattling their sabers and threatening to launch weapons and threatening to attack the United States. And so you heard the president has sent the sequester, he's pardoned it, and sent it to North Korea. And the man's like, damn right, they deserve it. <laughs> so if you want to have, uh, you know, you want to participate in politics, you want to have an honest election, first you have to inform the electorate. So we're glad to have Cato trying to help us inform the electorate. It's a, uh, an uphill battle sometimes. Um, you know, we worry about whether or not, you know, our government will treat people fairly. And I think that's one of the things that's really come home with some of these scandals. Now, um, this morning at lunch, they, they showed us a clip of Leno, and Leno was saying, yeah, the president's complaining that everybody's talking about, talking about these phony scandals. He wants to pivot. He wants everybody to talk about the phony economic recovery. <laughs> But the thing that resonates, I think, about the scandals, particularly the IRS scandal, is nobody really wants to think that if you lose the election or if you're a contributor here to a particular candidate, that if your candidate loses, that a $4 trillion government's going to come after you. And I don't think it matters whether you're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Independent, what you are, you really just don't think that the full force of government should be directed against individuals. So there was a woman in uh, Richmond, Texas, and her name's uh, Catherine Engelbrecht. Well, she got visited by the FBI, then she got audited personally by the IRS, then her business got audited by the IRS, then she was visited by the ATF. I don't know why she has a gun license, but she doesn't sell guns, but she still got visited by the ATF. She got visited by OSHA. She had like 20 visits with uh, federal officials. And... Uh, what was her crime? What were they investigating? I mean, the FBI is grilling this woman. Her crime was she set up a tea party. But you know what her tea party wanted to do? This is outrageous. She didn't want, she wanted to get dead people off the rolls. She didn't think dead people should vote. And so the FBI comes and talks to this woman. It's like, well, shouldn't they be talking to the dead people that are voting or the people that are having dead people instead of this woman who wants to get dead people off the rolls? And, and you say to yourself, you say, well, certainly this can't really be a big problem. Dead people couldn't vote or receive benefits, could they? In the last five years, dead people have received over $500 million in benefits. I'm not making this up. This comes from an audit of the government. So they caught one guy. One guy received his dad's Social Security check from 1971 to 2008. You know how they caught him? He died. <laughs> So there are a few things I think maybe we ought to agree. If we're going to have some bipartisanship, couldn't we at least get together and say maybe dead people shouldn't vote or get welfare? You would think. Anybody remember the show? What was the show? Um, who, uh, who wants to be a millionaire? You ask these questions. Isn't that the one where you could poll the audience? All right, this is your chance. We're going to poll the audience. How many people believe that you have a right, and we'll make even more specific, a constitutional right to privacy? How many people? Uh, how many people think you don't? Okay. It's actually a more important question than you think, because I say it all the time. I say we've got a right to privacy. But there is some disagreement. And some of the disagreements between maybe a little more conservative libertarians and a little more libertarian libertarians, I'm not sure how you make the division. But the, 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 the thing is, is that there is no listed right to privacy. So there was, there was this debate as the court cases went along on whether or not it has to be listed in there to be protected. 
So there's a case, and this is a case that President Obama hates. It's called Lochner from like 1905. And it's about a bunch of uh, bakers and um, their employees. And their employees, uh, they wanted the government to mandate that they could only work 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week or maybe 200 hours back then. I mean, but anyway, they wanted some limits on it, went to the court, and the court rules 5-4 that because it wasn't something directed towards their health, the government couldn't get involved with a contract, that there was some kind of economic freedom to contract that's not in the Constitution. In fact, the right to property is really not in the Constitution. You could argue it's in the Fifth Amendment, but it's not so explicit that you have a right to property. But the question is, do you have a right to contract, to make contracts? And in Lochner, it's a five to four decision saying you do. And really, it's an interesting case because I've asked my colleagues, and since they're not here, we can sort of characterize their position. Mike Lee and Ted Cruz and I do a lot together and we're very close on a lot of issues, but I've asked them, how would you, this is really important to me, how would they vote in the 1905 Lochner case? And so they're both no votes. I'm a yes vote. The yes vote was basically saying to a state legislature that a state legislature or a majority body a democratic body can't take away certain rights, that certain rights are really yours. They're either from your creator, some of them are listed in the Constitution, but some of them are just yours by fact of your nature or by fact of the fact that they're what some would call unenumerated rights. And to me, it's when, when Madison looked at the government and he said, there are certain limited enumerated powers, they're few and defined, I think rights are sort of the opposite, that your rights are many, unlimited and really undefined. And that's sort of the Ninth and Tenth Amendment. It says, not all the rights were listed, they're, they're, but they're not to be disparaged. They're left to the states and the people, but they aren't all listed. Now, why is this important? It's important a little bit because we get to other trickier cases. Griswold is a case in the 60s where Connecticut has a law saying you can't uh, buy birth control. It's illegal to buy birth control. And you may recall, you said, what the, what the hell is he talking about? Why are we talking about these obscure cases? This came up in the presidential debates last year. George Stephanopoulos asked this question about Griswold, and everybody's going, what? What the hell is he talking about? He gave like a two-minute question on Griswold. Nobody really knew what he was talking about. And then about a year later, Sandra, Sandra Fluke comes forward. And for a year, we talk about Sandra Fluke, and there's ads in every battleground state about birth control accusing Republicans of not believing you can buy birth control which has to do with the Griswold case. And then it turns out that the president has ads in all of these, all of these states. They plan this stuff. They're smart and they're evil, <laughs> but they're very smart. They plan this birth control thing all the way back to whichever reporter or whichever Obama aide called George Stephanopoulos up and said, ask a question about Griswold. We're gonna say Republicans don't believe in birth control. But going back to this whole idea, to me it's an important idea because when kids come to me and I have five minutes with them on the Capitol steps, I don't care what age they are or adults, I try to have one discussion. Are we a democracy or a republic? A democracy or a constitutional republic? I had this question with a famous uh, neocon who's on the news all the time last night at one of the television stations here locally. He says, what does it matter? And I said, well, because Wilson wanted to make the world safe for democracy. You guys wanted to make the Middle East safe for democracy. You're everywhere overturning governments. The Arab Spring happens and you get a democracy and now you're not happy. Maybe you should be a little more specific that it's not democracy you're in love with. We need to be in love with constitutional republics that are restrained, that guarantee certain rights. If you're just for democracy, 
you know, now they're complaining. The president's saying, well, it's a democracy, but they're, they're, they're acting like authoritarians. Well, yeah, they are, but that's the whole point. Democracy isn't the end answer. Democracy is not what we're fighting for. What we should be fighting for is for a constitutional republic, for preservation of rights. Certain rights can't be taken away by a majority. Why is this important? From the Lochner case in 1905, about 10 years later, there's a case called Buchanan v. Worley. It overturns the Jim Crow laws, the housing segregation laws in Louisville. And it's important because a majority, Democrats, by the way, which everybody should keep pointing out, the Jim Crow laws were passed by Democrats, all Democrats in my state. The Democrats voted against the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, and then they came along and instituted all of the Jim Crow laws. But we overturned it, and we overturned it based on Lochner saying that a majority can't take away this right to contract. But it was based on the right to contract. And they said, yes, if a white man wants to sell to a black man or vice versa, that's a contract. You can't inhibit this contract. So it is important to talk about it. Because you think about it, if you believe in majority rule, absolute majority rule, 51% of the people could come and say, we believe we ought to have slavery. Or 51% of the people could say, why don't we put all the Japanese people in camps? Oh, that's right, we did do that, didn't we? But that was a mistake, and that was a mistake because we forgot who we were. We thought we were a democracy instead of a republic. In a republic where you have things that are your rights, they can't be taken away by majority rule. They can't be, and it's much more difficult to change our Constitution. You could ultimately try to take away some rights. Some people would argue you can't even do it through supermajorities, that you should be allowed to take away rights. But I think these are important questions because we're not a democracy, we're a public. And most school kids and most people out there don't know what we are. And that's what we are. We're a republic, and it makes a difference. As we look and we move forward and we decide where we're going to go, we have to know who we are. And these debates over whether a republic, whether we have a right to privacy, all of these things make a difference. And I truly think that you do have a right to privacy. I think there's a lot of court cases that are gonna to have to be reexamined. A lot of court cases have been going the wrong direction for a long time. I'll give you two examples. One is on third party records. Once I buy something at Visa and it's at the Visa company or at my bank and they have my records, they say, you don't have any expectation of privacy. They're now held by a third party. They're no longer your records. Even if I signed a contract with my bank or I signed a contract with a visa company, they say, no, they're not really your records. The Fourth Amendment, and this is what they say, doesn't apply at all. So when we make the argument that the NSA has overreached and they're writing warrants to get billions of phone records, their argument really is that the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply at all. So you have to realize kind of where we are, and they may be correct with regard to precedent. There's a Maryland v. Smith and a Miller versus the U.S. in the 70s, and it was decided that way. It was decided that you don't get that expectation of privacy. I think we have a chance to revisit those because technology has changed to such extent. Our whole life is digitalized. I tell people, if you have my visa record, you can tell if I drink, how much I drink, if I see a psychiatrist, not yet. If I smoke, if I gamble, whether I read Reason Magazine, yes. So you can tell a lot about a person by looking at their visa records. Should you really have to get a warrant and have probable cause to look at someone's visa record? Absolutely. But your life has become more digitalized than it ever was. So much of your information is out there that we need a right to privacy. These cases need to be reexamined. The second case I'll tell you that has to be relooked at is open spaces. 
the courts made a decision a while back that if you can just fly over places and it's outside and anybody can see it, you have no expectation of privacy and the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply. So they fly over cornfields and they see marijuana and they say, we don't need a warrant to fly over the cornfield. That's sort of debatable. But think of what that sort of doctrine has morphed into now. We now have drones that can fly at 50,000 feet, or we have drones that are this big that can be flying outside the window or your bedroom window. And we literally have drones that can fly down your chimney into your house and monitor every activity you're doing in your house. At least I think we do. They won't let me in on those hearings, but... <laughs> Sounds good anyway. No, I think they may have. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm not against technology, but we should you should have to use warrants to get these things. So I wrote a letter. I held up the FBI, and I ended up being the only vote against the FBI director, but mainly because the letter, he, he did respond to me. I asked him, are you arming drones? He said no. I said, are you using drones? He said yes. I think it's classified. I can't tell you exactly how many times, which is really stupid to classify numbers like that. But I said, are you getting warrants? And he said when we need to, when there's an expectation of privacy. And I said, but, but we haven't used any yet. So they've been using them, they haven't got any warrants, but they don't see really a need to get a warrant. So I asked him another question last week. I said, well, what does that mean? When do you have an expectation of privacy where you would foresee that you would need to get a warrant? And so they sent back a whole bunch of cases, and I don't think they're lying to me. I think the cases have gone the wrong way. The cases basically say that manned surveillance, we've never had a case with unmanned surveillance, but that manned surveillance doesn't, Fourth Amendment doesn't apply. So we've made some mistakes, but we've made these mistakes when we're talking about helicopters. And you might know if a helicopter is buzzing over your house when you're swimming or eating or drinking a beer or having friends over. But now they can fly at 50,000 feet and they can tell who's at your house, what you're doing. I mean, it really is none of their business. And so these things need to be revisited. Third party records, open spaces. Now there was some hope for us. The Jones case from about a year ago was about GPS tags. And they said to the police, you can't simply GPS tag someone's car and then just monitor their activity for months and months and wait until they break the law. My goodness, if, I, if they could see all of the, the speeding episodes that I've had in my life. See, I've only been caught like one out of a hundred times. Can you imagine if they caught you every time you were speeding? But people don't want to live in that kind of surveillance state. And we now the technology has gotten there. I always tell people when I read 1984, it bothered me, but it didn't really sink in that I was like, this was something that could happen to me because it's like the technology. When I was a kid, imagining two-way televisions in everybody's you know, room and watching their every movement in a police state, I couldn't imagine it because we didn't have the technology. We do have that technology now. So I think we have to be concerned. Whether you think it's in the Constitution or not, Honest people can disagree. I mean, Mike Lee and Ted Cruz, and I will characterize them because they're not here and they can't defend themselves, I think are a little bit different than me. And they're not really wrong or bad. They just have a little different impression of this. I think it's easier to believe in the right to privacy and believe that Griswold was rightly decided. People can have mixed feelings about the next step. A lot of people don't like Griswold because it led to Roe v. Wade. I'm, you know, I'm different than some libertarians. I am pro-life. But what I will say is, is that at least up to Griswold, I think a lot of us can agree because there are other considerations with Roe, but at least with Griswold, I think we should be able to agree that there are unenumerated rights and those rights should be protected, whether they're natural or whether they come from your creator. These battles will continue to be fought out. I think they're important battles because 
Well, I don't know. There's this governor who's been giving me a hard time the last couple of days. And he thinks he thinks these are just esoteric and that they really don't they aren't important because he just wants to catch terrorism, catch terrorists. The thing is, is that if we give up on sort of the rights that we have in order to catch terrorists, are we losing the separation between who we are and who they are? I met a Boston policeman uh, a couple months ago, and he was there when the explosions happened. He rushed to the scene, applied tourniquets, and it was horrific. He, limbs were strewn everywhere, body parts, people were dying. It was like a war zone. And his, his reaction was the horror of the scene. And then he was part of the manhunt. And his reaction was hatred and venge, vengefulness for people who would believe that killing women and children and innocent civilians is somehow going to advance your religious ideology or advance your political ideology. There's no excuse for that. No civilized person can believe that that's a good thing to blow up, you know, innocent, innocent bystanders. And so when he caught them or he was part of catching them, one of them was shot. He said he didn't have a problem participating in that. That's the way it is. People are running, they're shooting at you, they will get shot. But he said after the second one was caught, He's been wounded, but he's finally caught and disarmed. He said the difference between us and them is that we didn't drag him through the streets and beat him to death with, with tire irons. We're different than they are. We believe in a right to a trial by jury no matter how despicable you are. And people like on the other side want to say, I don't care about terrorists and that I'm soft on terrorists. I'll pull the switch on that boy after you convict him. I really have no, no, I have no sympathy for these people. But the thing is, is I do believe in a right to trial by jury, and I think we lose what we stand for if we don't actually preserve the very things that I think we're fighting for. We have a young man in our town that my wife and I helped, and Greg helped and others, to build a house for him. He lost both legs and an arm. And when you ask him what he's fighting for, he says, I am fighting for the Bill of Rights, and I understand that. No, we should have right to trial by jury. That's what, that's what these young men and women who are fighting believe that they're fighting for. They believe that's what freedom is. That's what we stand for. So I think we can't give up on them, that it's not esoteric and that it's not unimportant. From a practical point of view, I would say that it's also how we grow the party. The young people are here, if you ask them, they're all libertarians, so they do care about taxes and regulation. But a lot of young people don't care about, they don't have any money, they don't have a business. The people here who, who have been successful, you care about taxes and regulation, all the standard Republican stuff. But if you want to appeal to young people, Talk about their rights. Talk about their right to privacy. Talk about the internet. Talk about their phone. Talk about the things you want to preserve. If you want to expand our party where African Americans will listen to us again, or Japanese Americans, or Jewish Americans, talk to them and relate to them about their history, where government has abused their rights. I think they will come to us if they see us as the party that defends against things like indefinite detention. The president signed a year ago that an American citizen can be arrested without charge and sent to Guantanamo Bay for the rest of your life without a trial. Now, he said he's a good man and he won't do it. The thing is, is I don't care how good he is, and maybe the next guy does it. it should, no, no person should ever sign a law like that into being. But I think if you relate that to Japanese Americans who were detained in the war, African Americans who were often arrested willy-nilly with or without trial, punished, or you relate that to people who are minorities of opinion, 
like, you know, the, the guy, Richard Jewell, who was at that bombing, everybody picked him up. They wanted to string him up. They, if he would have been black in 1920, he'd have been dead 10 minutes ago. But it turned out he wasn't guilty. It was the wrong guy. That's why we have this. So I think if we could relate on these ideas of justice, not let Democrats co-opt ideas of justice, if we could relate on the ideas of justice, I think we could transform and grow our party like it's, I guess it's in a Republican fashion, my party, like, uh, like never before. And I think we could end up winning elections. And so I think the party does need a libertarian infusion. And I think we also need to have a happy face. I tell people, there's a painter by the name of Robert Henry, and he wrote, to young painters, he said, paint like a man coming over the hill singing. And I love the image of that. And uh, my wife tells me never to sing, but I think of the Von Trapp family. <laughs> the hills are alive. <laughs> but it's such a happy sort of, you know, paint like a man coming over the hill singing. So I think to my party, to those who want to advance limited government, let's party, I think we need to proclaim our message like a man coming over a hill singing. Thank you very much. Questions while the food's come, but tell them not to wait on the food because they're probably hungry. Questions over here. When you're elected president, what will your first action be? <laughs> well, I like the supposition of your question. Um, you know, I think a lot of bad has been done through executive power and executive order, but I think some good could be done by undoing, you know, executive power and executive order. And I would probably steal from my dad and saying, you know, the first executive order should be to erase all the previous executive orders. Hi, being uh, someone from Boston, I'm just wondering what your initial reaction was to that uh uh, Friday morning when the Massachusetts State Police, Boston Police were forcing people out of their homes at gunpoint and searching without uh, a warrant going door to door in that neighborhood and basically terrorizing that neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> to tell you the truth, I have sort of mixed feelings. I know some people have been unhappy about the searches. There are exceptions to almost every one of our rules. I am a big believer in due process, and I got in trouble with this over because after I spent 13 hours complaining about drones, I, I, I said that there could be instances when we could use drones. It's sort of the same thing with going into someone's houses. And I'm not an, an attorney, but you know, if a guy runs into a house, you're allowed to run in right after him. If someone's screaming from the house, you're allowed to. There probably are unusual circumstances, and not good. It's not a good public relations sort of strategy. But there probably are in a manhunt times when you probably can go in without uh, w without a warrant and uh, without the permission of the owner. So it is sort of a because there are sort of the imminent threat of danger, and that's what I said on the drones. And a lot of people misunderstood me. There's going to be a time when policemen may have drones in the hood of their car that pop up and they've got a six shooter from a drone. And when someone is robbing a place and comes out firing at the police, police may not have to get out of their car. They may push a button and a small little drone may shoot the, the gunslinger. 
but that doesn't, you know, there are exceptions to the use of force and having warrants. You, you can use proportional force in a life-threatening kind of situation. Same way with that. I'm not real excited about house-style searches, but at the same time, if someone is fleeing and there's a neighborhood and you've got it quadrant off, you also don't know if someone's in the house saying no one's here and really a gun's being held to their head. It, it's not a great situation, but to me it didn't strike it as a real easy one to have a blanket answer to. All right, up here in the front. Hi, Senator. Um, you, uh, oh, my goodness, thank you. Hi, Senator. Um, you uh, spoke out against um, sending foreign aid to Egypt. And uh, you're pretty good at predicting issues before they come up because there ended up being a coup in Egypt. Um, but the presidency, you know, we have a law against sending foreign aid to countries that have coups. The president has declined to call it a coup. And it gets at a more fundamental issue, I think, of uh, let's say you were to pass your, your dream law. There's still the issue of enforcing it. I was wondering if you could talk uh, just a little bit of how, how you would do that and uh, if it really If you want to read something truly scary, truly right out of 1984, read their description of why it's, they're not going to decide that it's a coup. Their, their answer basically is that, well, it very well could be a coup, but you can't make me, you can't make me decide, you can't make me tell you whether I think it's a coup. It's like, really? Is this third grade? You can't make me? That's what their argument is. You can't make me tell you it's a coup. And so they're just not going to decide it's a coup. The law is very explicit. So I stood up in my conference today, and I believe in using shame as a tactic. And they're going to vote. At least half of them will vote against me. I'm having a vote on this tomorrow. And I had to throw a fit and do all kinds of shenanigans to get this vote. But I will get this vote. And my vote will say the law is the law. There's been a coup. The military aid ends. And just to spice it up a little more, since it's a transportation bill, I'm going to take the money from Egypt and build some bridges in the United States with it. And... Um, but to shame my colleagues, I said, look, you guys all the time are saying the rule of law, we're the nation of the rule of law. You have the gall to go around the world. You condemn people like the Muslim Brotherhood who probably deserve to be condemned, but you tell them you're not obeying the rule of law. We tell every other country what they're doing wrong and the law is explicit and we're just going to ignore it. Not always the president ignoring it. Republicans all are too because they love foreign aid so much they can't get enough of it but they're just going to ignore the law. And I've got a few of them now that are telling me quietly, oh, I hate your amendment. This is an awful idea, but you're right. And so I'm gonna get a few of them shamed into voting for my amendment because it is against the law. But, you know, I think how we obey and whether we get people to obey the laws is, a, you know, it's important, it's important not to set precedents where we don't obey the law. One last question here. Hi, my name is Sarah Harvard, and I go to American University. Um, today, Randall Manning was found not guilty in aiding enemies and found guilty on 20 other charges, I believe. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. Um, you guys have, didn't I say only easy questions? <laughs> you know, I think there have to be laws to protect some secrets. So I'm not with people who say you can't have, you can just reveal anything. There, there do have to be laws to, to protect some secrets. I think if uh, you've got the, you know, the plans how to make a nuclear bomb and it's a state secret, if you give that to the enemy, that is, that is being treasonous. Even if you reveal it, I think that's, you just have to have laws against that. 
Um, what Manning did was willy-nilly just release millions of pages of things. And I think some people have said there's potentially some harm from that, you know, individual agents that could have been killed or, or uh, put at risk from this. So there is a problem with that. Um, so I, I just can't support that. If you're doing something for a political purpose, you know, and the, in fact, in some ways, the Snowden case is a little bit different. But even with the Snowden case, I still think you have to have laws against what he did. So he did break the law. What I would say, though, is the interesting thing is, is you have to contrast. The National Intelligence Director also broke the law. You know, he lied to Congress. So he lied to Congress three months before Snowden releases his information. Snowden, if he were here, could maybe make the defense, well, I released this information because um, I'm a whistleblower. I'm telling you the head of the intelligence agency isn't telling the truth. So I'm correcting a lie by another official. Some have said he would have had an easier time with that argument had he come to a member of Congress and gone through the official whistleblower kind of pathway. I think they still would have probably put him in jail and thrown away the key. But the thing is, is that it's difficult because you do have to have laws to protect some state secrets. But at the same time, I think he was trying to reveal something he felt to be unconstitutional. It's made it harder for him in the eyes of public relations, Snowden, because he went to two enemies, two countries that have traditionally been seen as our enemies, China and Russia. And the intelligence agencies are painting that he probably revealed these things. No one will ever have any idea, but they'll say he did. And I think it will be hard for him to come back home. With Manning, I just don't have a lot of sympathy for what for what he did. And it does have to be against the law. And this didn't really seem to be political. You know, I don't think he was trying to make a plea. He says maybe now he is, but he just released like millions of, of uh, documents. So they're not easy questions. And I know there are people in this audience who will probably disagree with me. I think my dad disagrees with me. So anyway, thanks. Thank you very much.